there weren't any studios. You did the shows inside of the workspace. I realized at the beginning there was nothing that we wouldn't do or play. There was no script. There was no direction. There was nothing like this in the world. The very first time I walked into the building, it hit me like, I need to be here. I was this kid who was this huge fan. Now I'm here, now I'm a part of it. It's just talking about it right now because it gives me goosebumps. It was live TV and as soon as that shot was over, it was halfway to Mars. You could never be so far removed from the audience because they were right there looking at you. There was no script, there was no direction, there was nothing like this in the world. And ladies and gentlemen, this happened in Canada. You're listening to a trailer for a documentary called 299 Queen Street West. It's going to premiere on Crave, and it's a show you need to see. It's about how a renegade Canadian channel called Much Music took on the world they took on MTV. Take you back to August 1984. We're in the heart of Toronto's creative pulse. Much Music was a sound that would soon be heard around the world. It's the brainchild of two visionaries, John Martin and Moses Neimer. It's their response to this burgeoning music video phenomenon. This fan's insatiable appetite. They didn't want to hear music anymore. They wanted to see come to life visually. They wanted to put pop culture within arm's reach of desire. So we had these two visionaries, but like a lot of people with big ideas, they really didn't have a plan. They had two hours of content for six hours of airtime. Their answer, let's make it showtime. They got on their network, they brought in Eugene Levy, Martin Short, unscripted parties devoid of rules. They set the stage for a new era in music television. And as I said earlier, a showdown with MTV. And 299 Queen Street West became the nation's music capital. The royalty showed up. Bowie, Spice Girls, Nirvana, Madonna, Britney Spears, Justin Bieber, Michael Jackson, U2, Eminem, and many more. And the fans, they were part of the show. But if they couldn't get in, they were voyeurs peering through the windows. Well, today I'm here recording at 299 Queen Street West. And joining me are two people with the most magical energy. Two of the VJs that were part of this against all odds, fly by the cord of your microphone, Canadian experiment. that was much wherever it aired. Erica M. was one of the pioneering VJs at Much Music. If you're a fan of the show, she's been on my show more times than anyone else. She's a dear friend. She is someone with such magical heart. And she joined Much Music right after its launch in 84. She became one of the network's most recognizable and beloved faces. Her tenure at Much Music continued to the early 1990s. And she was part of shaping this cultural phenomenon. Rick Capanelli, often called Rick the Temp, prominent VJ at Much Music. He joined the channel in 1996. He had to step into some big shoes, and those he did. Hosted shows like Much On Demand and the Much Music Countdown. It was kind of this radio on steroids, interactive, fans calling in, and he just had the personality for engaging and making things happen. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Erica, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. And Rick, welcome for the first, I hope, many more times. Oh, Tony, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Yeah. And it's so good to be here. I'm so thrilled to be here. I mean, I'm your biggest fan. So thank you for having me back for the third time. So, Erica, I remember you in the early days of Much Music. I had two young daughters. That channel was never off. It was played <laughs> louder than I wanted. And you were this fearless and 
role model, not just for youth, but especially for women. Mm -hmm. And I want you to take me back to those early days because you didn't have necessarily the currency to take on that camera the way you did, but yet you did. And I'd love to hear about how that job came about. I think about those days a lot, Tony, and I had tunnel vision. All I wanted was to talk about music and I just had to be myself. I didn't have anyone to copy. So I just did what I had to do. And by the way, it was super stressful. When I went on camera, I froze the first time. I remember I was with JD and he said, and here's Erica. And Erica is radio silence. I sat there, my jaw was clenched and he kind of, you know, pushed me a little bit and joked around with me and I sort of spit out my first words. So I was terrified. And so when you're terrified, you just have to sort of dig deep and say what's on your mind. And so how does that happen? Because I got to believe one of two things can happen. You're going to be bullied and saying you're not capable, or you find someone that says it nudges you and mentors you and coaches you. I you think both. your life changed because of JD? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was bullied like crazy. Absolutely. And JD Roberts was the guy who said, just watch me, follow me, do your homework, work hard, always be researched. He was the one who taught me how to be a broadcaster. And one other person, Bobby Gale, the late Bobby Gale from Polygram, who pulled me aside one day in a club and said, can I talk to you honestly? And I was like, of course. He goes, you're having a problem on air. I went, yeah, tell me about it. Because <laughs> no one trained me. There was no trainer at much. There was no Denise Donlin at the time, right? Like, who helped you, Rick? There was nobody. They just said sink or swim. So this guy from the record company said to me, you know, when you're telling your stories, you need to do it beginning, middle, and end. Oh, I mean, no one had even explained that to me. I was just sort of vomiting out all this information about the music that I loved, but no one taught me about the structure. So those are the ways that I learned is by listening to my peers. And occasionally people would be brave enough to point out things that I wasn't doing properly. And that's how I learned. So talk to me about Moses Neimer. I mean, he's he's a name that rolls off. Some people are just think that this person is the iconic media personality. Other people have different opinions. What was it like working with him? Oh, he's 100% brilliant. This man reinvented media. I I do keynotes about what he did and how he has changed media. And not just media, the way corporations could run and should run. The way he inspired his staff to be more than just someone who worked for a company. He inspired people to be, there was no language like this at the time, but entrepreneurs, all of us were encouraged to start our own shows, do crazy things. We were encouraged to go beyond what we were comfortable with. Most companies do the opposite, Tony, you know that. They say, stay in a box and do your job. Moses said, the first day I started to work there, he said, Every job at City TV is creative. I didn't understand what he meant at the time, but through the years, and now, of course, looking back, I understand the brilliance in that, especially for businesses, to tell your staff, the people who do the audio, the people who are doing camera, so the behind the scenes people, they were just as important as us. And he encouraged everybody 
to go beyond their comfort zone. And that's why it was a hotbed of creativity. And and it was usually interesting things going on behind the scenes, behind the cameras that were the interesting things. If it was going to catch someone's eye watching on TV or if it was going to catch someone's eye walking down Queen Street, let's do more of that stuff. And that's what he really... Uh, let us know. He, he gave us free, free speech in, in terms of so that world. So why doesn't world. that trust exist anymore? Because what you're defining is what utopia that everybody wants to work on. I'm equal. Everybody's part of this. We're all creative. We're all contributing. And I mean, he, he was way ahead of his time with mm-hmm. diversity. He just wanted people that had life and energy. Why doesn't that exist anymore? I mean, you're a <laughs> keynote speaker. Rick, you've gone on and done some amazing things. Why is it that organizations want to confine and put rules and, and borders up when we know that humanity soars when it's unleashed? Well, it's such a great question. And in fact, there's a woman named Rose Patton who wrote a book about new styles of leadership. I read her book and it's brilliant because what she is saying is that leaders today in the corporate world need to embody more of the skills that Moses had, which are the concept of flexibility and creativity and fluidity. Most, well, I'm going to just bear with me here. Old white men believe in do it my way. And that's the way to do it. We need a different way of thinking, which is why you, Tony, need to be running more businesses or be (laughs) coaching people. Because when you ran Capital C, people were lit up because you gave them not just permission, but you, you encouraged them, you dared them to be more than what they could be. I think that you and Moses are very similar. You listen to what's bubbling and then you synthesize it and then give the the orders to the team. But they essentially built it. And then we're invested in the company. So, but Rick, let's, let's build on that. Do you think the media has to take shoulders some of this in terms of the fact that we're really talking about, do you trust each other? I, I've been out of the media since 2017 and back into the social media. I jumped in big time into social media. And and what we were talking about earlier, how there were a lot of restraints put on things when corporate gets involved, you know, there were a lot of, and that's what this you know, discouraged us, I guess, back in the day from, you know, what, what I didn't sign up for this, but I, th- I see it coming around again. I see a lot of brilliant, creative people on social media doing their own thing. And that, that reminds me of Speaker's Corner which Moses created back in the day. The original speakers, the original YouTube, I guess the original social media was that speaker's corner because it allowed anybody to go into that booth and speak their minds. And and, and that's what social media is doing now. There's not, you can, you can do your own thing. People are going to watch. Good for you. That's the cherry on the cake. Oh the yeah. Like I, I know that the genie is out of the bottle with mass media now. That's why all the broadcasters are, crumbling because they keep on doing things the old way, but the world has changed. Media technology has changed. If the technology changes, you need to change directions. And now all the newspapers and the large corporations are crying because they were losing audience share. It's because they're old and boring. And a great example of that is when Bell Media bought City and bought Much Music. And they imposed the old rules on a vibrant cultural voice and it died because the audience wants authenticity and the corporations want the old way of doing things, which is all bullshit. And we now, the audience, go, nope. We're going to go where people are giving us sort of authentic personality. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. You have to do interviews, you have to travel around, and suddenly it's... it's is it hard to come up with ideas? I don't know. I've just, I've just noticed that people expect expect more of a thematic angle with with our music. You know, they always want to read into it. And before, I was just using pieces of poetry and just just garble, just garbage. You know, just stuff that just would spew out of me. Joining me in my studio today is the one and only Erica M. and Rick Campanelli, two people with such incredible personality. So let's go back to the days of that authenticity, because mm-hmm. what I'm fascinated with, and I'm going to tease you and let you know that you're going to actually have an opportunity to be part of this interactive tour if you happen to be living in certain cities. But take us back to the days. First with you, Erica, uh, what's your favorite interview that you did? And then the second question, so you can think them both at the same time. And Rick, I'm going to come to you with the same one. Which is the one that got away from you? Okay, well, I'll, I'll do the second one first. Okay. <laughs> Since Why did I know you'd break well, the rules? And yet? also because... <laughs> You should, as an interviewer, you should never ask a double-barreled question. Okay, Chris, I'm going to review okay. that question so, as an editor. No, no, you're going to keep oh, no, that okay. in. You're going to keep that in because people have to learn about okay. the art of interviewing. Right. So the one that got away is you two. They never let me interview Bono and the band from U2. Um, I've always been a huge fan with them. I hung out with them before I was on air in the 80s. Um, I met them when I was... Uh, I think I was 18. And so was Bono. Um, Because of Bono, I went to university. He suggested I go into PR. I met him at a club where I was DJing. So they have had a huge impact on my life. And they have been my favorite band for many years. Did you just see how that rolled off? I met him at a band at a club when I was DJing. That could be an episode in itself, but go ahead. Did you know him as Paul Hewson then? Uh, Before Bono? No, no. Before Bono Box? No, no. he He was Bono. Yeah, okay. But... The people at Much thought that I would fall apart or act foolish. I'm still angry to this day about that because I would have done the best interview like I did for with Kurt Cobain, mm. where I would have gotten Bono to talk about a lot of things that he probably had never talked about, but talked about in his book, which I which I read. So what was brilliant about you as an interviewer, and let's talk about Kurt, because you did get people who are on autopilot. I mean, you got to understand these media scrums. Sometimes you're seeing 20 Erica's in a day and all of a sudden you show up maybe towards the end of the day and you change the criteria, you change the ground rules and you create one of the most magical interviews. And I think it was one of the last ones he ever gave. Thank you, actually. Thank you so much for saying that. I've given a lot of thought to the art of interviewing. Listen, if I could do anything for my career, it would just be interviewing people. In fact, I was with my sister last night and she was saying, we've got to get you an interview show because <laughs> that's a, that's what I love to do. I love the psychology of it. And for me, my the most important thing, which I believe you do as well, is when you sit down with the person that you're about to interview, I want them to see me as a human being. And I want to ask questions about them as a person, things that you ask, I know, Tony, things that are not the typical ones that are in these junkets. You know, they're so easy to come by. And then not only that, but then listen to the person and respond. Because when the, as you're doing right now, listening so intently, when you're an interviewer in the media and you're interviewing someone, but looking at your notes to see what are you going to ask 
next, the person feels like, well, you don't really give a shit about what mm-hmm. I'm going to say, mm-hmm. as opposed to building a, a conversation. And then the person forgets that they're being interviewed and they become human. Now, speaking of forgetting, we are talking about Cobain in your interview with him. So now I'm going to hear about what you did because the audience needs to understand because you're just, you know, like this is arguably at the time, one of the biggest stars in the world. And yes, you're a star in Canada, but your currency is very different. You're not walking in as a talk show host from an American television set. But that interview was magical. How did that come about? And how did you take control of something that his handlers would never want you to have control over? He walked into the room and I said, and I planned this, hi, do you want to do the interview? Now we're in a hotel room. This is a junket. So yes, he had about 20 interviews in a day. And I knew he was going room to room to room in Seattle. And so I, again, I had to get him to look at me like a human being and not just in quotation marks, the media. So he walked in, I said, hey, how are you? Do you want to do the interview in the bed? or on the porch outside, on the balcony. And he looked at me, and he was a little bit confused. He went, uh, the porch. And I was like, great, let's do it. Okay, I think it was Basil that shot it, our camera guy. And we set up outside. Basil just puts the camera on his shoulder. And then the first question I asked him is, so what are you reading these days? And he was like, what? Like, no one asks me that. He didn't say that, but his eyes said it. And the questions that I asked were kind of odd. They were like, why would you bring a child into the world when your album is so dark? You you find the world very dark, and yet you brought a child in the world. Why? Like those kinds of questions. Who would ask someone like that? I asked him a lot of questions that could have gone sideways, but it wasn't live. So I figured, well, I can edit it. And I just watched him. He kind of chuckled to himself. when, And he was like, this chick's weird. He's weird. Mm-hmm. And so I think he just felt like I was a peer. How about you, Rex? So you're coming in, this is after Erica's left the station. You've obviously grown up watching the station. How did you feel? Like, you're, you, I got to just now follow the sort of the format? Or is it you said this is an opportunity to also put my stamp on it? Before I get to the answer to that question, I just wanted to say I, I, I watched Erica. I watched the interview with Kurt. I, I, I watched Steve. I watched Michael. I watched JD. I watched Master T. I watched them all. I was uh, a religious viewer of much music as a teenager growing up. So I Did watched, you ever see yourself wanting to be I, it that was, interviewer or it, was it more just a voyeur? I, I was into the idea of music video because uh, I loved music. We all do. But you were Sporty Spice. I was, <laughs> I was Sporty Spice. <laughs> I, I guess it was always a dream in the back of my head. I would love to do what Erica's doing. I would love to do what Steve's doing. But, you know, you you, you, you never get there. It's just a wild dream that you have. But I I. I loved all those interviews that you did. I, I was I was starting to tune in just to watch the interviews and what the VJs were up to after a while. You know, first it was all about the music video. Well, now it was about the personalities and seeing how they were conducting themselves and seeing how that interview was going. So I learned a lot. Do you think you just, were alone in that? Or do you think organically oh, no. that no the, the audience was starting to move away yeah. from just being, you know, you're kind of the filler to being actually now you're the substance. No, I think we all as young Canadians growing up watching much music, we were the latter. There was this was the substantial part of much music now. This is the meat, the real stuff, the genuine stuff. Music videos, you could start getting other places at that point too. It was about Erica and it was about Steve and it was about all these amazing personalities. So 
I did all my learning watching you, these guys. And plus, at the dinner table growing up in a large Italian family, I always listened. I was the youngest. I never got a chance to talk. <laughs> watching much music for all these years, thinking, okay, one day, you know, I was going through my path, becoming a teacher, like my older siblings, going to follow in their footsteps. But much music was always there. I was always holding on to it because... I, I lived music. Uh, we we all did as VJs back then. So how many siblings in your family? Three older siblings. And so when you decided that you weren't going to follow in the the ordained path that I'm sure your parents were quite happy with, because very proud. They must be very proud to say that they had children that were going to become teachers. How did that go over? I was the black sheep of the family. Yeah. Let's just say it. Or were, you, or were you just so young and <laughs> forgot about you? Well, that's it. Yeah. I would always come come in home late, you know, after a night of partying or whatever. At, at two, my, my parents would be sound asleep because. They they went through it already yeah. with their three older kids. <laughs> no, it's all good. No, no. They loved us. They loved us each equally. But when I went down this different path of doing something totally different, they were like, this is so cool. Like, we're so proud of you. We're proud of all of you, but this is kind of cool. We've never seen stuff done like this before. And, and, and I basically, when I won that contest in 1994, I won my new life. And uh, it's thanks to Erica, again, uh, like you guys, you know, D Denise and, and the whole list of people that helped shape me once I got into that building. So Rick, this show's about, you know, overcoming circumstances and chasing dreams, changing your world and others. I mean, that's what the show's about. I want to tell me a little bit more about when I won that contest. What motivated you to enter it? How did that all come about? Because you just made a very Important statement. That changed my life. It did. It really did, winning that contest. I used to enter contests nonstop back in the day. You every did? Every contest that there was out there, I, would, I was a professional contest <laughs> entrant. But, you know, you, you put this contest, the temp contest, along with this station that I watched religiously growing up 24-7. I would watch the repeats. I knew that there were eight-hour live shifts. But I would watch them again and again and again. So you put a contest combined with much music. I got to enter that contest. I didn't win the first year they came up with it. It was nine. 1993 is that when they started it to go along with the movie of the same name, The Temp. I think it was a Paramount campaign, a promotion. You probably know more than I do. But I just thought, you know, I got to win this contest. I I, I want to be there. I want to be at this place that I'm dedicating so much of my time to as a viewer. And um, it, listen, thousands of people were entering those contests. I just happened to be the lucky one that won that contest. Stepping foot into this building all those years ago, it'll be 30 years next summer. Um, I won the lottery. It was it was a dream come true. I entered this magical world of television, following the footsteps of Erica. I wasn't a VJ yet. Yeah, but the I want to point this there. out because yes, he won a contest to be a temp. He wasn't on air. He was literally like a gopher guy. Yeah, and he is such an amazing guy. <laughs> People freaking love him, and this is where I want to tell you. He called me before this interview and he goes, hey, Erica, it's Rick. I'll see you in a little while. Can I pick you up a coffee before? Wow. It is, just... but no, but he is so genuinely L L kind and interested in people because Much Music chose a cast of characters who each had very strong personalities. And this guy, Rick, is a love machine. He is <laughs> kind. He's positive. He's genuine. He's the real deal. And that's why, and loves music and knowledgeable. And he works 
super hard. That Italian background, <laughs> that his parents did a really good job because he's a great guy. Oh, and I just wanted to relive all those memories from years y- yesteryear from bringing you coffee on set in the, in the environment. <laughs> I still remember the first time Rick meeting Erica. Brought me a coffee. Yeah, I, I, well. I was so nervous just being in that environment with all these these were my icons. How did these the were my heroes. How did you get in front of the camera? Well, I remember they used to bring me on to give away, uh, do a contest. Like, so there was a contest. So T would bring me on, Steve would bring me on. Unfortunately, I think you were on your way out at that time, Erica. I still remember meeting Erica for the first I time. I don't remember it. You don't remember this story? No, no. So it was a chair like this, Tony. Oh, she was so big then. She, she was. She doesn't remember little me. Yeah. I was actually sitting at Erica's desk in her chair early one morning <laughs> doing my temp stuff, getting ready, whatever. And Erica comes over to me. It was, it was the best. It was like 30 years ago um and uh i don't know how exactly how it went down but basically i was in erica's chair and, and i i shouldn't have been there because she it's her chair <laughs> no, we have no, one little so, sliver right. in our <laughs> little studio where and i was in your space the chaos yeah. of much music and you have one desk and it's like tiny and that's your space amidst this cycle of like madness. N- madness. madness. And so you walk yeah. in and yeah. there's this kid sitting in my desk and I, <laughs> like, I have to focus yes. because yes. Y- what you need to remember is that there was no script. Yeah. It was all in my head. You had to be super focused. You had to be able to just block out chaos around you, which has served me very well, honestly, through mm-hmm. the years. It gave me this ability to focus a- amidst yeah. madness And I had this little tiny space, which in between each shot, you go back and you think about what am I going to do next? So Rick, get out of my seat. (laughs) To to go, to to add to that too, it was from that moment forward as a temp duty, I had to put all the names of the VJs on the backs of their chairs and they still laugh about it to this day. Like the producer, you put names on the back. Yeah, that was one of my... Yes, I I had to put the so I wouldn't be you, confused. Look what you started. Yeah, look what you started. Meaningless, meaningless <laughs> there was labor. no name on my chair. <laughs> I wish there had been. Coming up, Eric and Rick share some behind-the-scenes stories that are now prime time. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout-out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform to find new fans through media exposure and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. Be a, a station ID? Yeah. Hey, uh, this is Dennis Leary. You know what? Um, you're watching uh, much music where you're not allowed to say things like Can you say You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests today are Erica M. She's been on my show several times, and Rick Campanelli. It's his first, but I hope, first of many. 
So, Rick, I have one question for you. If you're looking back at that time, anything stand out as the moment? Listen, I was this kid that was plucked out of Hamilton, going to see rock concerts all the time, paying for them out of my own wallet. Now I'm a VJ, and I get to go see concerts for free? You're going to give me a ticket to go see this? And you're going to give me their CD as well? I'm in heaven. And you're going to meet them. And you're going to meet them. Right. And in your case, become friends with them. (laughs) Become friends with some of them. So that was was huge for me. I just, I lived in in, in the venues. You were no longer an imposter and and the temp, and you had arrived and said, I'm not only stepping in somebody's shoes, I'm now marching in my own To this day, Tony, I will always be just a fan and a viewer of music, of film, of TV. We all are. That's how we start. I'm not any different from... Any other fan out there of music, of film, of TV, and that's—I've just kept myself in that lane. And so, you know, I, it was my—I was appreciate a, the humility, and your parents are going to be smiling if they're still with you because you have it. But you're in the documentary. Let's talk about. But the, I'm going to say something. Yeah. What he said is actually accurate because we were told at Much Music that we were not important or any more important than the camera person, than the director, than you know. We didn't want to be more important because no, that's more we, stre- more added pressure. Sure, it's more, true. We were stress, all, more. it was almost like a communal team. So you go out yes. into a bar and everybody knows you equally to the cameraman. Come on. Like, listen, I appreciate the culture and I celebrate it. I think it's wonderful. But at the same time, no, you're in front of the camera. The recognition factor and, and, shot and, through and, the roof, no doubt. But. And, you know, both of you parlayed in into some incredible work. I mean, a lot of people would, there's a great song, Bruce Springsteen, Glory Days. You know, it's about sports, but a lot of people would have peaked at your career. I'll never find another culture like this. I'll never find people like this. I'll never have that creative space to do it. Interesting enough, you found it through more media. I would argue you found it as an entrepreneur, but you're both moved on. Looking back, what was the greatest lesson? You've taught, you've teased a couple that you took and you put in your knapsack that you still carry with you today. There you go. That was one of the defining moments of allowing me to blaze my own path in life versus having to you know, go shoulder to shoulder, or even go behind. Someone. I'll begin if you don't mind. Erica said it earlier. You want to approach every interview with different questions. You want to get them from that first second, and you did with Kurt. You did with all your subjects. Like I wanted that same thing. I didn't want to be asking that same question that all nineteen other junket junketeers were going to be asking because they don't want that. They want something different, something that's exciting. So you, so that's what I learned over the years. I'm going to get this person from the first second I open my mouth. They're going to be on my side. They're going to be like a peer. They're going to be loving every minute of this sometimes five minute interview, 10 minute interview. You don't have a lot of time sometimes. So did you ever so, feel you were part of like both of you? It was almost like you're talking the travel traveling Wilburys, like incredible <laughs> talent coming together, producing beautiful music and always in awe because I used to, you know, Patty, I used to write my own songs. Now I got to collaborate through your career. I would argue that you were always very part of a collaborative cast yeah. and you became a solo act. Why do you think that happened? I'm going to disagree with you. Because when I became most alive is when I started Yummy Mummy Club, where it was a tapestry of voices. Yes, I was the boss, but it was 100% collaborative. It was like, um, I mean, I'm still connected to most of those women today. Yeah, I'm not implying you weren't collaborative ever, but you became... You were the owner of that business. You you became the Moses Limer of that business in the sense that you shaped it. It was yours and you brought a lot of the same principles of much to it. And it was fantastic. We worked together. I was in the agency business. That, that was one of the most so far out of its time. Rick, I would say that you were always there saying, I'm going to add value 
to a platform that exists. I'm going to, I'm going to stand on it. They're going to know who I am, but I'm part of a band versus just yeah. a solo act. Is well, that fair? Well, thanks to Erica and the VJs that came before me, it was a big, it was this place where everyone wanted to be. Everyone knew of it. Thanks. Thanks to the pioneers here, Erica and Steve. So when I got to be a VJ, I, we, that platform was already up there. I was just adding, adding to what they had already created. But even when you moved on into television and everything else, to me, you, you always were, you stole the scene without trying to be greedy. Mm. You came on, there was a lightning bolt, there was magnetism, there was a smile, there was energy, but you never, you never tried to push anybody. No, it was never about spot. me. It was ever always about yeah. the people that were That's, coming in for a great lesson visit, in life. But. So I want to talk a bit as we get towards the end of the interview, you got this documentaries being created. Thank heaven. Like I look at Jeannie Becker, who's a great friend of mine, these fashion television stuff was just dying in some vault somewhere. Yeah. Somebody had the, the brilliance to bring this together piece it together it must be the most magical thing for you two oh. to relive your past right. but it's going to be magical for so what are the people going to see when this airs on Crave and then I want to talk about you two being so gracious to actually go on tour and let audiences re reclaim some of that interactivity so first of all what, what are they going to see in the documentary I have a podcast called Reinvention of the VJ so I've interviewed about 20 of the people and reconnected with many of the VJs it's a brilliant podcast by the way and it was really interesting for me to get to re-know people again, or some people I'd never met because they were at a different era than me. So I had sort of done the groundwork. So when Sean Menard reached out to me to be a part of the this film, first of all, I grilled him because, you know, everybody wants to do a documentary about much music, but I find most people insipid and... I didn't trust him. So we had about a two hour conversation and I said to him, whoa, not only will I be in your documentary, but how can I help you make it? You're a brilliant young guy. So I became a consulting producer on it and I was able to tell him which people would bring different stories because I already had a lot of those stories already. When I saw the finished product, it was so much better than I could even imagine because it has an arc. It has a point of view. It begins before much music and then it ends very sadly when Bell bought the company and you see the change in culture and you understand why the beauty that Moses had envisioned, that authenticity, that creativity, that ingenuity, the innovation had kind of been sucked out by the end of it. You'll see it in the movie. It's a story. And Rick, you fly down to South by Southwest Festival at your own expense because you really want to show support for it. It must have meant a lot to you seeing that film. I I it did, uh, Tony. I remember reaching out to Erica. Erica, are we going? Let's go. We got to fly down. This is this is such a huge part of our lives. Come on, let's go. You like, your reply to me is like, no. Nah. <laughs> I, I actually am uncomfortable in the public eye, yeah. to be yeah. honest. Do you believe that, Tony? I actually know Erica and yeah. I do I do believe it on air. Erica run for politics. The world Canada needs someone like you because you actually think before you yes. act and you never you never hold back. But so Rick, <laughs> you go down and fly. What was it like uh, what was it like seeing it? What was the audience that really didn't know about it? Well, it, it was a year prior Sean and I did our portion of the interview yeah. for the, for the movie. Again, Erica introduced us and she said reach out to this guy. So, we had a good long talk at Sean's place uh, and Sean like Erica said, he's a brilliant documentarian. He did the Carter effect. He's his mind is so genius and and you'll get to see this uh, with 299 Queen Street West. So 
I said this was such a huge part of my life being a, a VJ at Much Music even before that you know being a viewer of Much mm -hmm. Music I want to be there he wanted to send me clips beforehand I go no I want to see it all in its entirety so where can I do that well you can come down to Austin with me it's screening it's galactic premiere as we used to say when we used to uh, they're introduce both from Hamilton videos. these we're guys so from, they really we're connected. from the hammer <laughs> and so I said Sean I'm, I'm going to be there no matter what it takes uh, you know I'm going to be there this is huge and I want to be, be there for you I want to be there for, for much music. I want to relive the magic. So yeah, we went to South by Southwest in Austin back in the spring and we got to see it with a room full of people, mostly Americans. And the Americans, they, they knew what we were doing because we were a high, uh, highly competitive with MTV back yeah. in the day being broadcast in the States. We had our popcorn, we had, we had all our old much gear on and we just relived two hours of, of our lives. And I'm getting goosebumps right now. It brings you right back to the beginning. I learned a lot. But I didn't know this these facts before. Right up until, again, the very end, like Erica was talking about when it was time to move on. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests today are Erica M. and Rick Campanelli, two of the most immensely talented Canadians whose magnetism extended beyond our borders to capture the attention of the world. Talk to me about the tour you're doing, because both of you have agreed to come out. Yeah. Uh, and so they're going to play the film, and, and, and I'll put the dates on my in the podcast notes, but they're gonna, you're going to come out, they're going to air the film, and then you're going to go on stage, and the audience can chat with you? Yeah. And Sean is going to interview us. I was like, Sean, you're not an interviewer. You're going to double barrel your questions. <laughs> but the audience members get to ask questions too. It's going to yes. be like an I and I. It's going to be like I'm live at much. It's going to be tape that. I hope they tape that. I, and sure well, Sean also it. said that he wanted to host because he said I've interviewed all of you, yeah. so I know what I want to ask you. Yes. Questions yeah. that I didn't get to ask you in the actual documentary. So he's going to host it and hopefully everybody will come with questions and memories and it should be a great night. So it's a movie screening and then a conversation after. You know, I always end my show with my three takeaways and Erica, yours was, I looked into Kurt Cobain's eyes. Mm. that is such an important lesson for people because we're so occupied and preoccupied with what's next and where are we? And she just, I looked into his eyes when I asked that question. And I think that is such a magical piece of advice for people. Just slow down and look in somebody's eyes, look into their soul and connect with them as human beings. And you do that as well, if not better than most. And Kurt Cobain looked right back into yeah, your eyes. Yeah. It was a beautiful it conversation. Was a beautiful Tony. It was a beautiful time for much. And, and, was a great, and a, sad great because interview. we lost yeah. such a great talent yeah. just shortly after. Rick, I think what you, your lesson for everybody is humility. Mm. I never wanted to own. I was there to bring out the best. All I cared about was, and this level of humility in a world that's all about how many likes and validation and look at me is something to embrace. And it's probably something that started with you as a young kid trying to hold on to the, the pork chop at the table when everybody's <laughs> going after it. Right. And the final one is that lesson for Canadians is we're capable of producing the best in the world. Yes. We're capable of putting content out that the world responds to that yeah. with, with no budget and no script took on MTV. And yes, it takes the vision of a Moses Eimer. And yes, it takes trust to allow people to do what they can do. But a country of 38 million people with our intellectual resources, our emotional resources, 
just let us be, let us do, let us create, and we're going to be the kind of country that everybody in the world would cut off their arm to be part of because that's what's possibility. And that's what I take away that you guys were part of something that was great back then, but will remain great for decades to come. So thank you both for joining me in Chat That Matters. Thank you so much. I always love this because I listen to every one of your podcasts and I always wait for what are three takeaways that Tony is going <laughs> to pull from each conversation? And these were great. Joining me now is Alan DePontier. He's the CMO of RBC. Alan, uh, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. It's great to be back. Great show on much music. And it really made me think that 40 years ago, that channel and some of the other brain childs of Moses Eimer, including fashion television, not only dominated the airways in Canada, but really found an audience around the world. Why do you think they were so special? They really knew their audience, first of all. Much music appealed to a younger audience. They weren't just music videos, but over time, they became a channel that reflected the interests and tastes of Canada's youth. So they're very focused on who their target audience was. Secondly, I think they were really authentic to who they wanted to be. You know, they didn't have the budgets of the MTV so they had to be creative and they really had to improvise and, and, you know, experiment and learn as they went. And I think one of their secret sauces, though, is they really created this VJ culture. The VJs were the music experts versus hiring like TV stars that came in and really connect both the artists and the audience together. And I think they really brought the audience into the content. Do you think that today with all the data that we deal with, there is room for that kind of experimentation? Because I love what you said. They didn't have the budgets. They had to just keep trying new things. And if it failed, so what? We'll find another route. Every organization today has to do it. Like they got to continue experiment. The challenges you have today versus maybe 40 years ago is it's a much more cluttered space for content. You have things like YouTube, you have TikTok. The audience that you're trying to appeal to has so many more choices to spend their time. But if you're not continually experimenting and engaging your audience, you're probably not going to be successful. So I think it's a must do versus can you. And when you talk about all these channels in this sort of noisy world, and I look at now with AI, you know, instead of drinking from a fire hose, we're going to be Content's going to come at us like a waterfall. What's your advice to my listeners in terms of how do you create content? I'll use the theme of my show that matters, that sticks, that people go, that's worth my time. You know, Tony, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There is no silver bullet because there's many different ways to be successful in this space. A couple that would come to mind for me, what Much Music did really well, you got to know your audience. Who are you really trying to engage with and who are, what are their passion points? What do they care about? The second thing I would say in today's world, quality over quantity. You really want to make sure that what you're doing is going to truly resonate with your audience. The audience is busy. Do you have new information for them? Or do you have a unique perspective that they're not hearing from other folks? Is it helpful? Another way is really looking at cultural insights and really tapping in how people feel. And I think at the end of the day, the biggest one is really how are you engaging or entertaining? you got to have unique ways to tell your story. You're going to lose people pretty quickly if it doesn't engage them that way. So there's not one silver bullet. I was being facetious up front. At a brand level, beyond an individual content contributor, most important thing is just be authentic to your brand. You want to know who you are and how you want to engage with that audience because uh, today's audience will basically call you out on it if you're not being authentic. It sort of dawned on me what much music was doing 40 years ago was using their platform and allowing Canadian artists 
emerging Canadian artists to stand on it, to get much needed profile, to feel what it's like to, to be on television or play in front of a live crowd. In many ways, you're kind of replicating that. I'd love you to tell the audience a little bit about what you're doing, because I know that within that community, it listens to Chatter the Matters. There are people that really dream about singing for their supper one day. It's just so wonderful that music is back after living through COVID for a few years and most live events shutting down. So we're super excited to have like a stellar summer season this year, you know, in sponsoring some of the, the big programs, you know, whether it's in London, Ontario, we're doing Rock the Park or, you know, Blues Fested up in Ottawa. What we're trying to do is bring to get world-renowned artists like Alana and Marset or the Black Eyed Peas and we brought them to like our concert series at the Canadian Open but every time we do those, when we bring folks in that have uh, name recognition, we also try to pair that up with a lesser known artist through our RBCX music program to help get them some profile and get them exposure to an audience that might not look at them or listen to them uh, on a day to day basis. So we think that's a part of the role we can play. We also know beyond just them getting profile, there's lots of other things we can help them with their practice. We also help them with how do they get their career going, how to manage their career, etc., which is also valuable to help them be successful, not only in their career, but also in their life. You know, I, we just have a firm belief that the arts play a significant role in society, and it's important that we support at those earlier stages of a career. Everybody likes Justin Bieber when he's got 100 million followers or whatever his number is today, but helping out that young Justin Bieber is just as important. Alan, I really appreciate uh, you joining me in the show, and I can tell you something over my almost 200 episodes with RBC, I've taken great pride in those nuggets, finding the next Justin Bieber, or what you're doing with the Future of Work, or RBC Community Golf, and the things that you're doing out there to really uh, help people thrive and communities prosper. So I, I appreciate you sh coming and spending some time with me today, and uh, you know I'll be knocking on your door again. Awesome. Appreciate it, Tony. Have a good one. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.